by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Albert Bader. We're privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And today we begin another season of Lent. A holy season, a season of reflection, repentance, a season where we focus even more clearly on the passion, cross, and ultimately the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So, uh, Pastor, Vicar, happy Lent, and happy Lent 1 to you today. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Yes, we are um, beginning our first Sunday in Lent, and we have these uh, wonderful kind of funky Latin names. Uh, Pastor, what Sunday is it that we're going to be looking at, Lent 1? Invocabit. Invocabit or Invocavit. Uh, there's some uh, discussion there about the uh, correct Latin or the old Latin or whatever, but it simply means he calls. And uh, don't get too uh, don't get too crazy with these uh, Latin names. It is uh, for the season of Lent and also the Sundays in Easter. These uh, Latin names are generally the first Latin word in the introit. And that is a wonderful place for us to go because we begin every one of our Proclaiming the One programs with our introit. The introit helps set the theme for the entire day. From there, we go to the primary text for the day, the gospel reading. And then in the time that we have left, we go to the Old Testament or the epistle or both. Today, we have a a wonderful, wonderful psalm that is uh, given to us in our introit, and that is Psalm 91. We have selected portions, and uh, we're also going to read the uh, gradual for today, which is a portion of Psalm 91, because because we're going to do it, because it's important and significant for our gospel reading. So, Vicar, the introit for the first Sunday in Lent. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness shortly after his baptism. And we see that last verse, verse 13 of Psalm 91, talks about um, treading on the serpent, you will trample the serpent, and uh, so you can see the the connection that is there as uh, Jesus conquers the serpent, as uh, the serpent tempts him the same way that the serpent tempted Eve and Adam. So when we're looking at this particular psalm, and it starts out, when he calls to me in Vakavit, in Vakabit, Um, when he calls to me, I will answer him. Okay, pastor, who is the he, and who's doing the calling, and who's doing the answering? 
Well, um, there are two ways you could take it. You could say uh, it's God calling to us through his word, and we hear the word and we answer him. We could also see it as uh, God speaking. When we call to him, he will answer. Uh, and I think the one, the way we should take it as Lutherans, uh, understanding um Understanding worship is beginning with God, and then our response is that first way, so that God is calling to us and we answer. Um, he gives us his word, and we speak it back to him. Um, I think that that's one of the ways that we should take that. Okay. When he calls to me, I will answer him, I will rescue him, and honor him. Who is it that needs rescue and honor? We do. Because of our sin, because of the things we do wrong, because of uh, all the things going wrong in this world. Now, when we look at the Psalms, many people will say things like, um, first and foremost, we need to see Jesus as the subject of every Psalm. First and foremost, we can see Jesus speaking the words of every psalm. How would you apply that uh, that first line from verse 1 of Psalm 91 to that kind of a thinking? How does Jesus fit in here? Well, uh, as we're going to see here later uh, in the temptation of Jesus, Jesus, um, when he is confronted here by Satan, uh, he uses God's word to uh, to go into the face of Satan, to defeat Satan, to uh, do all that. Uh, we can also see these words as spoken by Christ from the cross as he's there uh, calling out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, with God having turned his back on him and finding the, uh, the answer in uh, Easter Sunday when Christ is raised from the dead. There's all sorts of ways that we can take these as being the words of Jesus or uh, about Jesus or uh, even words prayed to Jesus. Okay. The next line, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Well, not every Christian lives a long life. And Jesus himself was crucified at age 33. So we would look at that and say, well, Jesus did not live a long life as well. Uh, how are we to understand these words, with long life, I will satisfy him? What's happening here, Pastor? Well, I would qualify the statement you made, not every Christian lives a long life with the words in this world. Okay. Um, and you, you said Jesus didn't live a long life, and I'd qualify that with in this world. But then you also think about the fact that on Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead. And for the last uh, almost 2,000 years, 1,990 years uh, at least, he's been alive in heaven, which is a, a pretty decent amount of time. It's longer than even Methuselah uh, lived. And when you also consider the fact that that life will continue uh, forever and ever without end, as uh, Handel's famous for putting in his uh, Messiah, forever and ever and ever, um, that's, uh, that's a pretty decent uh, amount of life, I would say. Okay. Uh, Vicar, what's the problem here? Because when people think about life, rarely do we think about anything other than our human life and our human existence. Um, my dad died when he was 44. My mom died when she was 97. So when I hit 44, every year was gravy after that. And now I'm thinking, um, you know, maybe halfway between 44 and 97. Maybe that'll be my life expectancy. Maybe I'll take more after. You know, these are how these are the terms that we think. And why is why is that a problem or a danger, uh, especially when we're confronted with words like this from the Lord. Well, I keep thinking of uh, the heresy of the Sadducees, right? When they're testing Jesus to try to trick him in his words and they're, you know, asking the question, there was a man and a wife, the man died and she had seven husbands after him and in heaven, who will be, you know, her husband? And Jesus says, no, no, no you're wrong because in heaven we'll be like the angels and we won't be given a marriage. But the main thing is there will be a resurrection. So our life here in this earth, whether it's a matter of days or a hundred years, that is a short time compared to eternity. And it is a problem when we as Christians think, well, we want to have our best life now because we know 
that simply isn't the case here in this fallen world. We look forward not only to life in this world, it's a great gift from God, but the greater gift is eternal life with him in paradise when our bodies will no longer see corruption, when we will see with our own eyes our salvation, or him, my salvation, as the psalmist says. Oftentimes we pit one against the other, Pastor. We pit the reality of eternal life with our Lord and Savior Jesus after we die. We pit that against the life we live here. Either the life we live here isn't that important, or um, all we think about is this because we know we have that in our back pocket when we die and go to heaven. How is a good balance the the key to, uh, in many respects, that happy Christian life, that content Christian life, or even as Vicar uh, quoted Joel Osteen, your best life now. Uh, how is that really the, the key? Well, I mean, there is a certain amount of balance that goes into it because um, because we know we have the eternal life that is to come, that sets us free uh, in a way to live this life um, in a way without uh, worrying about uh, what uh, the end might bring, about worrying about how we're going to make ends meet because this, as Paul says, this present suffering is not worth comparing uh, to the promise that is yet to come in Christ Jesus. And so we, we do look forward to eternity, but we also live this life in contentedness, knowing that we are in God's care, no matter what things arise, that we'll continue to be in God's care. Uh, Even should somebody uh, try to take our life or uh, harm us, it doesn't matter because all those things are in God's care even now. And so we're free to live our life in a happy way right now, knowing that we also have a life that is yet to come. Take they our life, goods, fame, child, or wife, though these all be gone, the victory has been won. Uh, that that phrase just keeps coming back as we're, we're talking about things eternal and things temporal all at the same time. We don't want to pit one against the other. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, some of these words are, are made famous from that, that pop tune that made its way into the Roman Catholic Church. It's even in our hymnal, On Eagle's Wings, because this uh, psalm is quoted, and that that line is quoted exactly. What does it mean, Vicar, to dwell in the shelter of the Most High? To dwell in the shelter of the Most High, I would imagine, would be in his holy place that is in the temple where God has promised to be with his word and still today in his church where God has promised to work through his word and his sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to dwell where God has promised to be, to give us the goods, that is, the forgiveness of our sins, so that we can enjoy life here in this world while anticipating our life in the world to come. Normally, when we think about a shadow, we think about something dark and scary. But here in Psalm 91, shadow is given a, a positive look. Will, uh, he who will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What does it mean to, first of all, about proximity, but what does it mean to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, Pastor? Well, yeah, proximity, first off, it has to do with the closeness uh, to something. And so usually, uh, because of the diffraction of light, you have to be fairly close to something to be in its shadow. Uh, and so I always think of this as like uh, my kids uh, who walk around with me in my shadow. They follow right behind me wherever I am, and uh, they know that if anybody... Uh, causes a problem with them that they've got dear old dad to uh, mix it up with them and uh, have their back and defend them and keep them safe. Uh, And so that's the idea here. We're right uh, underneath God, you know, uh, right there in his care and in his uh, shadow. Normally we take our first segment and we look at our introit, but uh, we're putting a little more emphasis on our introits this year. We're going to be uh, dwelling and focusing on them on the Wednesday evenings in Lent. So we're going to come back and take a look again at our introit, Psalm 91. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Nebraska. 
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Albert Bader. We're taking a look at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. As I mentioned in our previous segment, we're taking a little bit of extra time during this Lenten season to focus on the introits. The introits of Lent will be our special focus for our Wednesday evening worship during the season of Lent. During the season of Lent, we gather twice on Wednesdays. 4 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. with a fellowship meal in between. That'll start serving about 5 o'clock and go till about 6.15. So please join us uh, after work, after school, whatever. Join us for worship, a fellowship meal, an opportunity uh, to be in God's house and hear God's word during this Lenten season. And our theme is, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. Thanks be to God. We're looking at our introit, the... Uh, portion of Psalm 91, and uh, we left off with the phrase, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, before I mentioned, I quoted a little bit of Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Pastor, what does it mean that God is our refuge and our fortress? Well, it means it's the place that we can... uh find comfort and peace and protection when struggles are uh, facing us, difficulties arise. The picture here from the time the psalm was written is uh, the temple, as the vicar said earlier. And the temple was not just the place of worship. It also had huge imposing walls surrounding it. It was a fortress at the same time. And so uh, the church and the fortress were all one thing. In fact, when Titus uh, invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, the Jews held out in the temple for a long, long time against the invasion uh, from the uh, the Romans. In fact, the Romans had to conquer the Antonia Fortress and then had a small little walkway that was the only entryway they could get into the temple itself. Uh, and that's why Titus also said the blood flowed very, very deep there when they finally did get in. Um, and uh, the same thing in the Old Testament time as well. The temple was up on a hill uh, with steep valleys around it, and it was difficult to get into. And so in that way, we do see that picture as the Lord, the temple itself, uh, the place where God is, being the fortress where we are kept safe from all the struggles and difficulties going on around us. Vicar, it says, uh, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, what does it mean to dwell in or with the Lord? And it uh, connects in very well to the verse you had before with regard to the Most High being our shelter. So what are we talking about here, that God is our, our dwelling place? Well, first, I think we can get this anytime we're in God's Word, that we're dwelling in God's Word. He is working through that Word to give us faith. And where do we go to hear that Word faithfully proclaimed into our ears? To God's church, His church here on earth, uh, in our building, where God's Word is proclaimed and His sacraments are administered, where God literally has promised, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He's dwelling with us, literally. Okay, I think uh, I think it's interesting. We could uh, we could spend some time on uh, do we dwell with God or does God dwell with us? That is a uh, that's an interesting question and uh, one that probably uh, could be fleshed out at some point in time. We're going to move on here, uh, Pastor. There seems to be a bit of a conundrum here, so I need you to help sort it out. The thought pattern here is. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. I know a lot of Christians who dwell in Christ, who dwell in the Word of God. Uh, The Holy Spirit dwells in their heart. I know a lot of Christians where bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens to good people. Um, people get sick, people die, people lose their job, uh, people have conflict in the family, people uh, suffer. So how are we to understand this? Because it seems like a contradiction or maybe an out-and-out lie. Pastor? Well, um, we have that word there, evil, 
um, and that um, evil will befall us or conquer us or defeat us or all these things. That's never what happens when we belong to God. Might we die? Yes. Might we get sick? Yes. Might uh, our money run out and we be hungry or or, uh, starving? Yes. But we belong to God, and all those things are at the the worst, a temporary thing, uh, because when Christ finally rescues us and takes us into his kingdom and to the peace and joy that he promises, those things will be long past forever. Once we actually dwell in the house of the Lord, uh, the, the new heaven, the new earth that is to come, then no longer will these things come and affect us. I think St. John says in Revelation 7, uh, no longer shall the sun beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat. No longer will they thirst or hunger, but rather they'll be in the midst of the Lamb in his kingdom, and he will lead them to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the promise that we have. It's um, Right now, we're, you can... You know, if we're to use the uh, the medieval picture, we're on the journey uh, to that place, and we're not quite all the way there yet. So, so what? I, if I'm hearing you correctly, we have a now and not yet theme here in Psalm 91 that uh, the Christian should not let the sufferings or the problems that are very present in this life deter from the promises of God because the ultimate victory is his. And I think that's the proper way to understand that last line as well. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Is this something that happens now? I can go out and uh, stick my hand or my feet in uh, the the a nest of poisonous snakes, and I'm not going to get bit? Or is this a picture of that ultimate paradise on the last day? I, th- I think it's a picture of the ultimate paradise on the last day. I think Isaiah writes about this as well. I think also the idea of treading on a serpent is always finding its fulfillment in Christ uh, and the cross. It's the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 when uh, uh Eve is promised that one of her offspring that comes from her womb will crush the serpent's head. Uh, and so we have that fulfillment in Jesus. And for us, that fulfillment has its completion as we enter into God's eternal kingdom. I mentioned before that I was going to have Vicar read the gradual because it uh, fills in a gap. It is two more verses in Psalm 91, and it helps us with our gospel reading. Vicar, Psalm 91, 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this verse is famous because of who quotes it. <laughs> Pastor, who quotes this verse and what's the what's the word picture there that God wants us to know with regard to the quoting of Scripture? Well, it's Satan, actually, that quotes this to Jesus in our gospel lesson when we get there. And uh, so we have to always be careful when we quote Scripture to use it in its context in the way that God has laid it out so that we're using it appropriately. Satan likes to take verses out of context and to use them to tempt us to go against God's Word or put God to the test, just as he does here with this verse for Jesus, uh, telling Jesus, you know, it's okay for you to jump off this uh, high height uh, because... God will bear you up so you don't even strike your foot against a stone. And that's just uh, out of context and, and not in the context of what God actually wants us to know uh, that he's caring for us and providing for us. What, what is that context, Pastor? The context is God does support us and carry us through the difficulties of this world, uh, but that doesn't mean that... Um, you know, I should be. Uh, you see these videos on YouTube of people hanging off the tops of buildings or riding their unicycle, you know, on the pinnacle of a hundred-story uh, building and things like that. That's not what God's saying you should do. Rather, He's saying you should live your life according to God's word, knowing that God will always be there and support you and give you the way out of this world through Jesus Christ. We shouldn't tempt the Lord by saying, uh, "Well." God, you promised to take care of me, so I'm going to run out in front of traffic. Right. Or you promised to take care of me, so I'm going to put massive amounts of alcohol or drugs into my body and not worry about the consequences. This would be tempting the Lord, and this would be using one part of Scripture to violate or to trump another 
clear part of Scripture. And God's Word warns us about that. Satan is the master. He's the father of all lies. And it shouldn't surprise us that Satan, who knows Scripture, who knows it very well, would twist it and put it out of context to tempt the believer, to tempt the Christian, to doubt the promises of God. Now we're all the way back to the beginning of our introit. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will rescue him and honor him. We have a promise from God that when we're in trouble, we can call out. He will hear us and he will answer us. The ultimate deliverance is ours, forgiveness, life, and salvation in Jesus Christ. He may choose to deliver us from the earthly trial that is uh, uh, assailing us, but more importantly, the ultimate victory is ours because of Christ and his victory over the grave. We have uh, set the stage here, I think, uh, very, very well with our introit in the first Sunday of Lent. The gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent is Matthew 4, 1 to 11. And I think we have just enough time left in this segment to introduce the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Vicar? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, in him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Marvelous text here, and we have uh, just a, a couple of minutes to uh, look at this before we take our next break. Pastor, I want to go to the very end here, and it says, Then the devil left him after this uh, particular uh, episode of temptation. does not mean that he didn't tempt him uh, during the rest of his earthly life, but this particular episode was over. And behold, angels came and were ministering to ministering to him. We've got so much going on in this text. Rarely do we spend any time about the work of the angels with regard to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Comments on that as we head into break? Well, even I think we struggle to understand who these angels are, and so maybe it'd be worthwhile to talk about the fact that angels are part of the creation. God made them in the beginning um, as a part of the creation. Uh, a number of them, led by Satan, uh, turned their backs on God and fell into sin, uh, desiring to be God themselves, and that's where Satan comes from. The rest of them stayed true to God and his word and uh, do whatever God desires them to do at a particular time, usually preaching a word of God to people here on earth. And so I think that's part of how we can take this particular text. Angels ministered to Jesus, they ministered to you. Thanks be to God. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. Don't change that dial.
Sundays at noon on KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. In our first two segments, we looked at Psalm 91 and the introit. I would just encourage you in your devotions and preparations for this week's worship, uh, you could not do any worse than spending time in Psalm 91 in preparation. We uh, introduced the gospel reading toward the end of our last segment, The Temptation of Jesus. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. I think many people, when they think of the temptation of Jesus now, they think of the beginning scenes in the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. And you have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, and you have the bloody sweat and all of these things coming down on Jesus And yet, this is not the only time that Satan came and tempted Jesus to not go to the cross. Here at the very beginning of his ministry, and this is recorded for us in uh, in all the Gospels, probably most dramatically in Mark, but here we have Matthew 4, 1 to 11. And to me, it has always been... um, I don't know what the what the word is. It has always been amazing to me that this temptation of Jesus, this temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, takes place so close to his baptism. Pastor, a few comments on the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus and the connection. Well, it's the reality of baptism that when one is baptized, one gets a target painted on their back for Satan. Satan is after those who are baptized and desires to take them away from the faith. We see that happen so often in our world for those who are baptized and forsake it. Uh, And the same here is true for Jesus. And it's no surprise, really, if you've read the Old Testament, because uh, every time, so the, the people of Israel pass through the water of the Red Sea and they enter the uh, wilderness of sin, and uh, it's there that uh, they are tempted again and again to forsake the God who just led them through the uh, the Red Sea. You know, uh, well, we don't have any food here. We don't have any water here. Uh, things are difficult. Now there's these serpents, and uh, they grumble and complain. Satan is after them once God has selected them to be uh, his chosen people. Uh, when the people pass through the water and enter into the Holy Land, uh, the same thing takes place where uh, they're constantly under attack by foreign enemies, by uh, those with false gods and trying to be led astray. And even, you know, with uh, Noah, when he gets out of the ark and he uh, is there, he's uh, given into drunkenness and uh, despair, even though he's received this great promise from God directly and the sign of a rainbow. And so it is that when we pass through water uh, and receive God's blessings and gifts in baptism, that we are under attack from that time until finally we leave this world and enter the promised land. And so Jesus is, uh, and the, the fact that his temptation comes immediately after his baptism teaches us what to expect. Right. Uh, it teaches us that we are not immune from temptation. If Satan went after Jesus, he is certainly going to go after us. And in this account of the temptation, of our Lord and Savior Jesus on this first Sunday in Lent. We see not only the tactics of Satan, but we see how Jesus overcomes temptation for us. In oh, Go ahead, Pastor. I was going to say, it might be worthwhile thinking about the entire text here, too, and thinking about, ultimately, what's the thing that Satan is tempting Jesus not to do? 
if you look at it and you follow through these temptations, you see that in the end, Satan is tempting Jesus to not go to the cross, to not bleed and die, to not take our place in sin, death, and hell, but rather to try and take a shortcut around that. And uh, Christ will have none of it. He will not let anything that stops him from saving you from your sin uh, happen. And so he boldly goes to the cross and bleeds and dies in the face of Satan and all his temptations. It's the same then uh, at a later date when uh, Jesus is on the cross. What's the temptation Satan keeps throwing at him? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Um, and uh, that's the same thing Satan is using here. I, I think that is uh, very, very important for us to keep in mind. The goal of the temptation of Jesus is to keep him from going to the cross and empty tomb. The goal of, tempta- of Satan's temptation with us is to tempt us to stop believing in the one who has gone to the cross and empty tomb for us. So the goal of Satan is always the same. He wants more people in hell with him. The uh, first temptation. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We've talked about that. Uh, Every Christian should expect this. The bullseye is on the back. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Uh, Wouldn't take me 40 days and 40 nights, maybe 40 minutes. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Vicar, what's going on here? Why would Satan tell Jesus to turn stones into bread? What's the deal? Well, obviously, Jesus has authority to do this, but he is not going to give in to Satan and do these things because what's the reason even why Christians today might fast? When we feel that hunger or that thirst, it makes us uh, or it reminds us that we cannot provide for ourselves. We need sustenance from the outside. We need to rely on God to provide for us. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He keeps the faith that we are unable to keep by trusting in his Father to provide for him. And so he's not going to do this work for himself, turn these stones into bread to provide for himself, but he's going to rely on what his Father has given him, his word, to trust in that and get him through. I've often thought that it was interesting that the uh, people were tempting Jesus with this same kind of temptation in John chapter 6. When, after the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus does provide bread and fish for hungry bodies, uh, they want Jesus to be their bread king. And they see Jesus as only one who can take care of the body and who has no interest, or they have no interest, somebody has no interest in the soul. And Christ, again, has to uh, teach the real reason why he is here. How does Jesus respond to that first temptation of Satan, Pastor? Well, he goes to God's Word, uh, which is no surprise, knowing who Jesus is, the Word made flesh. But he goes to God's Word, and he quotes it uh, in context according to the way he originally intended it when he spoke it. And so he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's something that I'm sure Jesus wanted to say so often to those people of Israel wandering in the wilderness of sin when they were saying, we're hungry. Didn't we have meat pots down in Egypt? Why'd you bring us out here into the wilderness to starve? And even when they ate the manna and they uh, uh, were tired of it and they said, we're sick of this food from heaven that we don't have to work for, God, I think, in Jesus specifically so often would have wanted to say, you should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. little dramatic irony here. Jesus speaks the word of God, and the word of God that he speaks encourages people to hear and believe the word of God. So we've got a little uh, a little double play action going on here. In the uh, second temptation, the devil took him to the holy city, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now Satan plays that game, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is the ultimate temptation that Satan is tempting Jesus with by taking him up 
to the pinnacle of the temple. What is the temptation here? The temptation is to, it's the same one that Satan used with Adam and Eve, to change what God's word means, uh, to take God's word out of context and to make it uh, apply to what we think it means rather than what God really means it to mean. And so here Satan takes a part of God's word and he twists it and takes it out of context and tries to use it to justify his own position, which is what he did with Adam and Eve. Uh, Will you surely die? Uh, You won't. It'll be just fine. Go ahead, take and eat. Everything will be fine. Uh, Eve gives in uh, and eats and Adam uh, eats with her, but Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says, you're missing part of God's word, and here's the rest of it. In verse 7, Vicar, Jesus responds to this second temptation. Um, What does Jesus do with regard to Satan quoting Scripture to him? He quotes Scripture right back to him, but uses it truthfully. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Um, telling Satan flat out that, yes, I know that you know the Word of God too, but you're misusing it, just as Pastor Moline was saying, as he did with Adam and Eve, and Jesus won't fall into that same trap. The last temptation seems almost to be the oddest here, Pastor. The devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to these, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. How can Satan tempt Jesus with all of creation when Jesus is the one through whom all things were created? How, do, how does that work? Well, it's, it's, uh, I know you're a Civil War guy. It's kind of like uh, these are the places that have turned their back on you, God, and uh, now are under my dominion, if you will, Satan is saying. And the real temptation is not so much to get these, because in the end, Christ is going to have them one way or the other. The question is, how is he going to get them? And that's where the temptation lies. What is the way that Jesus earns all the kingdoms of the world and their glory uh, to belong to him and to really be his footstool underneath his feet? He does it by going to the cross, by bleeding, by suffering, by being spat upon and mocked and all the rest, and dying and rising from the dead. Uh, Satan is saying to him, you don't want to go to that cross business? Look, here's an easier way. Just fall down and worship me, and then you can have all this stuff uh, in your own way. And it really, Satan is saying, in my way, instead of in God the Father's way of bleeding, suffering, and dying. And Christ answers the question uh, of Satan again then when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, not my will, but your will be done, God. So, so once again, we have Satan tempting Jesus to use his power and might and authority for things other than God's intended purpose of sending his son into the world, to do things apart from the cross and empty tomb, uh, a shortcut in his mission and his work, a path to glory apart from the theology of the cross. There are a lot of different ways that we can look at this. Jesus' answer to uh, Satan on this third temptation is... um, too much to tackle in the uh, time that we have left. So let me just suffice it to say, who are you worshiping and how do you worship? And we're going to take that uh, question when we come back from our break. How does the temptation of the Lord, as recorded for us in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, connect us to our Sunday morning worship? This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
sacred head now wounded. What a beautiful Lenten hymn and what a beautiful picture of the reason why we observe Lent. Our Lenten journey is to the cross and empty tomb. We know the work that Jesus undertook for us and for our salvation. It was not purchased with gold or silver, but with the holy precious blood and the innocent suffering and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus. On Wednesdays during Lent, we're going to be focusing on the introits and that theme, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. Please join us at 4 or at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday evenings, fellowship meal in between, beginning serving at 5. Also, we'd love to have you worship with us on Good Shepherd on Sunday morning. We gather at 8 and 10.30 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. You can always listen to us live, any worship service that we have. 95.7 LP FM on your dial and check out the archive thecross957.org and everything that we do is there you can check us out we'd love to have your feedback as well we're looking now and we're going to wrap up in our last segment here the holy gospel for the first sunday in lent matthew 4 1 to 11 the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized. Jesus immediately is led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where he is tempted. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's weak. He's hungry, humanly speaking. Satan attacks him at his most vulnerable time. I think we can learn something for the tactics of Satan here as well. Uh, Satan rarely attacks us when we are the strongest in the faith, but when we are the weakest. And many times when he does come and attack us, he does with a very, very simple word. We want to go there in just a second. I left off with uh, Jesus' answer to the third temptation. The uh, devil had taken Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The temptation of Jesus and worship. Thoughts or comments, Pastor? Well, I think it's interesting. Um, the way Jesus responds to Satan is to quote God's word. And what is worship except for hearing God's word and speaking back to God the things that he has told us in his word? And you see that uh, really handily and helpfully in our new LSB hymnal, uh, where everything that we do in the divine service has next to it a scripture quote. Uh, you know, so when we say, um, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. It says this comes from First John. When we say, Lord, have mercy uh, on us, we have all those places that Scripture quotes that listed for us right there in the hymnal. And that's what worship is. And so in that way, Christ's responses to Satan are in themselves worship of the one true God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same is true for us. If we are speaking God's word and uh, doing that, that is a good and proper worship uh, of the true God. And confessing the truth uh, not only cuts down Satan, but it also is that worship. When Satan attacks us, he always, I shouldn't say always, he often attacks us with the word if. With the word if. He's planting seeds of doubt. He's causing us to mistrust the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who and who alone is worthy of our worship. What is the problem, Vicar, with the word if? Well, just as you've said before, it's the seed of doubt. Uh, it's the little voice in the back of your head saying can this really be and when we use that word if in relation to god's word uh not wanting to say that it is the inerrant word of god by which god works through to grant us faith in him and in these words uh if we say well most of it is god's word but if there's anything that's not yeah we just put that little bit of doubt in us so then what can we believe other than Nothing at all. So it's a very dangerous little word. 
if, if you are the Son of God, did God really say? The book of Hebrews teaches us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Pastor, how is the sure and certain faith that God gives us, creates in us, and sustains in us, how is this attacked by Satan through his ploys of if and doubt and did God really all these things? How is that uh, connected and how are those things attacked? Well, the uh, faith and certainty and assurance is attacked by that word because of the very definition of what the word is in language. It is a conjunction that uh, assumes contingency or a possibility that the thing you're talking about is not true. And so when Satan asks the question, he already puts in there an assumption that there is no God and that the thing that uh, he's asking about is not true when before uh, you had no doubts or nor uncertainty. And so the very small word if by introducing that contingency into there introduces doubt uh, just in that very nature of how language works. And so that's the dangerous part of it um, that uh, we need to combat and, and be certain in our, our faith because of the word of God. Doubt is like a cancer. That once it gets a foothold in the heart, it spreads and it spreads, and before long it can consume the entire person, the entire soul, and I have seen it where it has even consumed people physically as they were driven to doubt and despair. Jesus teaches us in his answer repeatedly to Satan, Jesus teaches us the antidote to doubt. What is it, Vicar? It's God's sure word, what we can trust in. Uh, It's kind of interesting going through here. Jesus is not wrestling with the bad college question, who am I? (laughs) He knows exactly who he is and what he has come into this world to do, and that is to be the Savior. And so he will not allow Satan to try to trick him by asking, are you really the Son of God? Have you really come to save? Jesus answers with God's sure word and basically confirms that, yes, I am who I say I am, and I am marching headlong to the cross to do what I was sent here to do. So, Pastor, does that tell me that if I just memorize enough Bible passages, when difficult times come, when doubts creep into my mind, when Satan attacks me, all I have to do is just have two or three of these key Bible passages and uh, pull them out of my quiver, and uh, then my life will be sweetness and fluff for all the days? Uh, how, How does Jesus teaching us the importance of Scripture with those simple words, it is written. How does that translate into my life right here, right now, when I am being tempted? Well, I would be very careful saying, you know, so long as you memorize the right Bible passages, you'll be fine, because what's that put the emphasis on? I. I, right, that you can do it on your own, and that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. And if you think that, you already lost. (laughs) Um, But rather, what he teaches us here is that Satan can be defeated by Jesus, not just can be, but is defeated by Jesus. And uh, the scriptures assure us of that. That's why it's so important to be in God's Word and to have the scripture passages at hand, because throughout all the pages of scripture, everything teaches us that God is going to kick Satan's hiney and win the war and the battle through the person work of Jesus. And that's what scripture does. Uh, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is all about Jesus. And that's where we need to look and have the certainty and the hope. So, Vicar, what are some ways for the Christian to get a full armor of Scripture, God's Word, protection against the assaults of the devil that we know are coming because we're baptized and we have that bullseye on our back? What are we to do? Give me some practical things and practical ways. Practical things are daily devotions in your home with your family. 
whatever type of reading plan you choose to have, uh, whatever type of devotion material you choose to do, make sure you're reading God's Word, whether it be just a chapter a day or less. It doesn't matter. God works through that Word to strengthen your faith. Um, on Sundays or other days when it's offered, go to church. Hear God's Word proclaimed. And then when church is done, uh, maybe don't be quite as fast to run away to brunch or whatever, but stick around for Bible study to dive even deeper into God's Word and have God thoroughly bless you through it to strengthen your faith. Pastor, you've been uh, you've been at this gig for nearly a decade. Uh, and Ooh. I know and I know most of your uh, most of your experience is in North Dakota, but uh, I think the Christian Church and especially the Lutheran Church is uh, is pretty similar geographically wherever you go. Vicar said that one of the ways that we can grow and strengthen our faith and uh, become more sure and certain of Christ and his promises is by reading God's word on a regular basis, doing daily devotions, either individually or a family. What would be your guess as to the percentage of Christians that actually do that? (laughs) This is depressing. Uh, I would say my guess of the number of Christians who actually do that uh, would be 5%, maybe 10. Uh, if we're being generous, 10%. I think very, very few actually do. And it's a shame because we live in a t- time and a day when we have more Bibles per capita than any other time in the history of humanity. You can uh, I, I listen to the Bible in the shower through a podcast app, you know, uh, or uh, in the car you can listen to our radio station where we have scripture readings in between the, the shows, you know, from Max McLean. Uh, we have all these opportunities to be in the Word, but no time to do it and no interest to do it, and very, very few people actually study the Word. I think that's one of the great blessings of this radio station, this program, and some of the other Bible-based radio programs that we have. People have a way, even in their busy lifestyles or whatever, people have a way to tune in to the Word of God. We are to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's Word. We can do that in a variety of ways, and in this world that we live in, with all of the uh, social opportunities that we have, there are lots and lots of ways. And one of the things that I'd like to challenge our listeners and the members of Good Shepherd Congregation to is, during this season of Lent, how about a fast? And, I mean, if you want to do a dietary fast, that's fine, but what I'm thinking about is a fast from something that keeps you away from the Word of God. If you're spending a couple of hours a day on social media, how about a fast from that and spending some of that time in God's Word or listening to God's Word? If you spend two, three hours a day with your fantasy sports team or uh, reading the newspaper or all these kinds, how about a fast from that during this season of Lent? Hear the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Open up your Bibles at home. Share it with your families. Grab a portals of prayer or a Lenten devotional at church. It is written. That is a phrase that should give great comfort to every Christian. It is written. And you know what? It's written for you. The Christ, Jesus, has overcome temptation. He has gone to the cross. Forgiveness, life, and salvation are yours. That's guaranteed by his victory over sin, death, and the grave. It is written, Jesus Christ, for you, O sacred head now wounded. We need to bring this uh, day to a close. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll be back again next week. And in the meantime, when it comes to Sunday morning, get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor and go to church. Thanks be to God.